one of the great things about um, being on the uh, uh, on the church planting team is you get to realize how many people are contributing to a church plant's flourishing that are never seen or never known or never recognized. And um, one of the one of the people that has significantly mentored and fed me as I've learned how to preach and also lead in many different ways and be a pastor is uh, someone who's here with us today who's going to be bringing uh, a word from the Gospel of Mark for this first Sunday of Advent. It's Father Kevin Miller. Father Kevin Miller is the Associate Rector at uh, Church of the Resurrection, which is our sending church in Wheaton. And Father Kevin Miller does uh, much of the preaching there, and he also uh, oversees spiritual formation, uh, adult education, and many different, uh, many other forms of the, of the church's outreach and ministries. Um, so Kevin is a, is a dear friend, a dear mentor, and uh, we're so delighted that he is going to be opening up Advent for us this morning. Father Kevin, why don't you come on up and join us? Oh, it's so good to be here. Um, I, and thanks to you, Aaron and Laura, for inviting Karen and me to come. Um, I see so many people I know from res days, and that is awesome. Uh, I had a lot of meetings in my office at one point or another with many of you talking about this dream and praying for it, and to see it in living reality is uh, pretty overwhelming, actually, to me. I'm really blessed, and I'm excited what God's doing here. Um, a few months back, Karen and I were uh, watching a movie on Netflix, and I had not paid close attention to what the movie was, but I quickly realized that it had been filmed in the 90s because the main character at one point pulls out his mobile phone, and it's like the size of my shoe. <laughs> Maybe it's like a 6 plus. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, the, the film was shot in New York, and in the middle of that movie, there was a camera pan where they came across the skyline of New York, and all of a sudden I went, <gasps> like that, because right there, jutting up and dominating the skyline were the two twin towers of the World Trade Center. And I didn't go, because <gasps> they were impressive, although they were impressive, but because I knew they're gone. They're not there. And I wonder what it would have been like if you and I had been there in Lower Manhattan on that day in 1973 when those towers were dedicated. To stand there looking at buildings that the world had never seen that tall before. And to be gazing up, you know, they're sheath, they were sheathed in aluminum alloys, so the sun is just like glinting off of them, and they're so impressive and, and strong. And, and if somebody, while we were doing that, came up and said, hey, buddy, you're like, not now, I'm looking at these buildings. No, no, hey, buddy, what is it? In less than a generation, this generation will not even pass until one floor will not be left standing on another. There will be nothing here but twisted steel and smoking rubble. You'd say, please, please, I don't go for those end times rantings. I'm not into all those conspiracy theories. Would you please just leave me alone? And yet, a mere 28 years later, I was sitting in my office with my ear up against the radio, listening in horror as those towers did exactly that. They crumpled, they melted like ice cream, and they vaporized into dust. Well, the, the sense of incomprehensibility about that kind of word, the sense of shock and horror 
that something that established and powerful and strong could come down is what the disciples of Jesus must have felt in this morning's gospel in Mark 13. Because as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, look, massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And they were the greatest building. It was the greatest building by far. Do you, it took almost 50 years to build. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And what Jesus talks about with his disciples there is the end of the world as they know it. It's the shaking. It's the great shaking of everything that they have confidence in. And what his message to them applies to us because he also gives us great wisdom here about how you and I are going to handle the end of our world as we know it. When the world is shaken and everything our confidence has been put in is also uh, shaken hard and much of it brought down. And how do we prepare for that? How do we get ready? And yet, I have to say, it's going to be difficult because this chapter here in Mark 13, I don't think there are many teachings of Jesus that are more misread than this one, that are more misapplied than this one, that are more misunderstood than this one right here. And yet, I would be so bold as to say this, that as we walk through this together this morning, by the time we get done, the problem will not be that it is not clear what Jesus is saying to us. The problem will be that it is clear. And then it challenges you and me to our core. Let's look at that together. The disciples come, verse 3, and they say, Whoa, 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 what did you just say? <laughs> verse 4, when? When's that going to happen? And what would be the sign that that's going to happen? When? And so Jesus replies, he tells them a whole lot of things that are going to be signals. Uh, but he says in verse 32, very clearly, and it's there in your bulletin, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, that's me, but only the Father. In other words, I don't know when. I don't know when. And verse 33, be on guard, be alert, you don't know when. So the disciples ask when, and Jesus says very clearly, I don't know when, and neither do you. Now, I don't know that anything that could be more clear than that, but that has not prevented Christians from saying, I know when. <laughs> you may have uh, read, seen the headlines three years ago when the late president of Family Radio, Harold Camping, went out publicly with big billboards and announcements and that, that the end of the world was going to be October 21st, 2011. Okay? Now, as soon as you hear somebody make a prediction that the world's going to end on October 21st, make a dinner reservation for October 22nd. Because if, if God has not revealed this to his only begotten son, who's in the intimacy of the, the Godhead, do you think he's going to send like a secret message to Harold Camping? Okay. So that's not going to be happening. So what Jesus is answering in this amazing chapter is not when. He's answering something that's much more important than when. It's how do you and I get ready. And, and, and let me just read to you, if I might, eight direct imperative commands that Jesus gives in this chapter. And as I read those to you, I believe every person here will know exactly what Jesus is talking about here in this chapter. So here they are. Watch out. Keep watch. Keep watch. Watch. Be on your guard. 
Be on your guard. Be on guard. Be alert. Now, is there anyone here who is not clear about the main message of Jesus Christ in this chapter? <laughs> so the question for you and me this morning is, what is it we're supposed to watch out for? What is it that is so destructive to us as disciples that we must be on our guard against that? We've got to watch out for that. And Jesus lists three things. The first thing he says is, is there in verse 5. If you, oh, I guess, I don't know if you have that in your bulletin. I'll read it. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out that no one deceives you. So the first thing is, watch out for getting deceived because you long for relief. Watch out for getting deceived because you long for relief. Now, deception is one of those things... You go, oh, I'll know when I'm getting deceived. No, you won't. That's the whole point of it. <laughs> you don't know when you're getting deceived. So there are going to be a whole lot of Christians, friends, who are going to think, I'm in with God. I'm good with Jesus. I am so ready for his return. And they're not, but they think they are. They're actually confused. They're deceived, but they don't know that they are. And, and, and Jesus goes on in verse 6 here and, 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 and dials it up and it says, many will come in my name claiming I am he, and will deceive many. So there's going to be many deceivers and many people who get deceived. And so what you and I, if we stay faithful to Jesus Christ, we are often going to have this experience where we're like, well, every other Christian's going along with this. Maybe it's okay. Maybe I should rethink this. Maybe I'm being too old school. Many will be deceived. And, uh, and we have to watch out for that. Now, why is it that so many would be deceived? There are two sections here in this chapter where Jesus talks about this danger of being deceived and tells us to watch out for it. And in both cases, right up against them, he says something like this. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes and famines. Now, what happens when war breaks out, when ISIS starts spreading? What happens when there's a global economic meltdown or troubles in the Eurozone or there's some sort of big earthquake or tsunami or typhoon? What happens to people? They get freaked out. They get totally freaked out. We all do. We naturally get freaked out. And we're like, whoa, uh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And when we get freaked out, we automatically go looking for somebody who will promise us relief. And we go for somebody who will say, don't worry, I got it. I got this all under control. Just do what I say. Just follow along with what I've got, and it'll all be fine. And, and people are going to pile in to the relief boat by the boatload. But here's the problem. One of the clear distinguishing marks of fake religion as opposed to true religion is that it promises more relief than the real thing. And it promises faster relief than the real thing. Okay, Jesus is out in the wilderness of temptation and Satan comes to him and says, Oh, bread. You can have bread right now. Hot, steaming bread. Bread with buttermilk on it. Oh, so good. Why are you, why are you torturing yourself? Why are you waiting out here so hungry, waiting for a word from God? It may never come. Do you see how he's promising instant, immediate relief? 
That's what the faith always does. Why would you think, Satan tells Jesus, that you have to go through some costly crucifixion to, to get all the kingdoms and glory of the world? I'll give it to you right now. We can spare you all that stuff. And fake religion is always promising people immediate relief, right? I mean, why should you have to put up with messy, imperfect communities in churches? I, I'm sure this one's perfect, but out of rest, it's not, right? It's messy and imperfect. Uh, so why do you have to put up with that? Why can't you have perfect community? That's what the Branch Davidians promised. Why do you have to put up with imperfect leaders who sometimes make mistakes and mess up and don't have their, everything totally together, like is in real churches? You could have a perfect leader. That's what Jim Jones told the People's Temple. Do you see how fake religion always promises relief? And when you and I, are, we are so oriented toward relief, because in our culture we think religion shouldn't have to be this hard. Uh, a couple of summers ago, I was preaching through uh, Colossians, and there's some verse in there where it says, be holy and, and live a pure life. So that was what the sermon was that day. And afterwards, this, this uh, young woman pulled me aside. She's in her 20s. And she said to me, hey, that was, that was so interesting what you said today. And I brightened up a little bit. And, and she said, but, you know, uh, you know I, after college, my friends and I, we moved into the city. And I don't know anybody who lives that way. Translation, I don't. And I'm not intending to. And so I tried to talk to her a little bit about this New Testament view of life. And what's at stake for her? And I realized she did not want to hear. Because what she's looking for is some way where I can have Jesus and I can have spirituality and I can have all the blessings of that and I can also have the immediate relief of not having to live the costly, painful way of chastity. That's what I want. And that kind of fake religion is going to pull people in. So Jesus says, look, watch out and don't you be deceived. When I come back, it'll be so obvious, verse 26, People will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So don't go for these other fakes and wannabes. Watch out. All right, well, Jesus says not only watch out for getting deceived because you long for relief. The second thing he warns here is watch out for caving in under persecution because you long for acceptance. Verse 9, you must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death, and everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I think those are some of the most terrifying verses in the Bible. That your kids would rise up against you and betray you? What I wish Jesus had said is that if you follow me, everyone will love you. People will send you floral bouquets. People will write you checks. And instead, he, he, he just has to tell you the truth, which is if you follow me, you will endure to some degree or another some shame, some opposition, some hostility, some misunderstanding, some measure of rejection, some measure of closed opportunity, some measure of suffering, and some measure of sacrifice. That's actually what's going to happen if you follow me. There's no way around that. It's like every generation of us Christians has to endure that to some degree. It's like this baton that we have to run with, and then we pass it on to the next generation of believers. And friends, right now, in this world, if you, um, if you see an instance of religious discrimination, 80% of the time, it's against Christians. 
So Christian, Christianity is by far the most despised, vilified, persecuted, and oppressed religion in the world today. And so Jesus is just telling us simple facts. Friends, this, this is what you're going to get. And so watch out. Don't cave in because he who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, out in Wheaton, we're watching an interesting case, uh, which is actually at Gordon College, a Christian college in Massachusetts. Um, I don't know how many of you have been following this, but um, President Obama signed an executive order this summer um, stating that anyone who uh, uh, works with federal contractors cannot discriminate uh, on a hiring based on sexual orientation. So we all probably saw the headline on that. And so the head of Gordon College, a man named Michael Lindsay, along with some other Christian leaders said, uh, President, uh, it's been uh, announced that you're going to be signing an executive order along these lines. When you do, would you also make provision for religious freedom exemptions so that we can hire people who share our own value and lifestyle code? So anyway, when that came out that he had written, by the way, that didn't happen. Obama went ahead with the order, as I just stated. But even the fact that he had written that, the mayor in Salem, Massachusetts, which had a contract with Gordon College to run their historic town hall museum, terminated the contract. And then the superintendent of the schools in Lynn, Massachusetts, where for 11 years Gordon College students had been volunteering in the schools, terminated that. We can't have people coming into our schools for free and teaching children how to read because they might be carriers of this noxious ideology. And then the New England Association of Schools and Colleges said, hey, we need to review your accreditation. And so now they're on this 12-month kind of waiting period where they're reviewing their policies. But it's been very clear in the press that if Gordon leaves into their uh, community covenant uh, any prohibition on homosexual behavior, it's most likely they will lose their accreditation. Now, how you run a college and attract donors, faculty, and students with no accreditation, I have no idea. Okay, but that's what Jesus said is... Just get used to it, friends. That's what's going to come. But you have to, what you have to watch out for is that you don't cave in, that you stand firm to the end and, and because what a lot of your witnessing is going to be on the witness stand. You'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Some will get it. A lot will not. But all of them will be able to say on the judgment day, you know what? I did hear. I heard. I had a chance. And I knew. Those who endure to the end will, stay, will be saved. Well, friends, these are sobering words, aren't they? All right, watch out for getting deceived because you long for relief. Watch out for caving in under persecution because you long for acceptance. And this third one, I think, is the foundation on which those two rest. Watch out for putting your faith in the wrong thing because you long for security. Now, this will it, it, to explain this one, I need to wade into some of the most misunderstood verses maybe in the New Testament. Uh, let's, let's look at this. Uh, in verse uh, 26, Jesus says, At that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then three verses later in verse 30, he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Have you ever read that and wondered, now how do those two things go together? Right? How do they go together? Well, I think what Jesus is doing here is what is uh, fairly common, actually, in the scriptures, and it's what I would call a bifocals prophecy. Here's what I mean by that. The prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is speaking to something that's coming. 
And, and that prophetic truth has both a near-term and partial fulfillment, that's sort of like the, the bottom part of the bifocals, and it has a longer-term and ultimate fulfillment. That's like looking through the top half of the bifocals, the distance glasses. And what the prophet often does is they are given by God this, this set of bifocals, and they look through both the near-term and the long-term, and they say there's this essential dynamic that you need to be watching for. It's going to happen in the near-term in a certain way and to a certain degree, and then it's going to happen to an ultimate and final way, longer-term out. Okay? I could show you this if we had time in Isaiah 7. I could show you this kind of bifocals prophecy in Joel 2. But it's definitely what we're working with here. And so Jesus says in verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now those verses right there are in the bottom half of the bifocals. That's the near term. What Jesus is saying is within one generation, which in Hebrew thinking was 40 years, actually in our thinking, it's about 40 years. These, this, these stones in this temple are coming down. 37 years later, the Roman military machine moved in with legions and, and knocked down every single stone in the temple. And by the way, these were 65 feet wide, 8 feet this way, and 10 feet this way. Massive stones. And it pulled them all down. So his prophecy is true. Now, what we have to ask as, as his followers today is, okay, what dynamic is he warning about in, in the bottom half of the bifocals that will also be true and even to a greater extent in the top half of the bifocals because that's still to come. All right, he, he calls it an abomination, verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand although most readers misunderstand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right, what's he talking about here? This is a phrase in the book of Daniel. It appears three times in the prophetic book of Daniel. And an abomination that causes desolation refers to something that's sacrilegious, something that's actually opposed to religion, but it's forced on religious people whether they want it or not. And so Jesus is saying, it, 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 in one generation, that's going to happen. And sure enough, when the Roman military came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city, they brought in their military emblems, which have a symbol of the emperor who was considered a deity and worshipped, into the very holiest places of the temple. That's a sacrilege. It should not have happened. That's what the bottom half of the bifocals was. Now, the top half of the bifocals, we don't know exactly, but we know there's going to be something sacrilegious, something that religious people are opposed to, something that is forced on them. And at that moment, Jesus says... Flee to the mountains. Let no one in the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Now this word from Jesus is counterintuitive wisdom. And here's why. If you were living outside the city of Jerusalem in Judea and an invading army starts to come toward your land, where are you going? You're going inside the city walls of Jerusalem. That is the most fortified, the most safe place anywhere around. And if the army breaches the walls of the city, where are you going? You're going inside the temple, the most massive building in the entire city, the most defensible. And by the way, God said in Psalm 32, that's my resting place forever. That's where you're going. That, and what Jesus says is the opposite. He says, don't even go to the most safe, 
secure thing that you would put your faith in go the opposite way. And Christians, taking Jesus at his word, left Jerusalem before the, in advance of the Roman military uh, operation here, and they were spared. The Christian community was spared when Jerusalem was reduced to rubble and 50,000 Jewish slaves got taken over to Rome to build the Colosseum. Think about that the next time you go to, to Rome and look at the Colosseum. It was put together by slaves as a death machine. But anyway, what Jesus is saying is you'll be longing for security when all these things happen. And, and you're going to try to put your faith in the most secure, stable thing there is. Even that won't hold you up, Jesus says. Now, what do we do? We go, you know, I really think that the, the world economic system is really stable. I, I'm, that's where I'm kind of confident. I'm sure the IMF and the World Bank and, and the Fed, those people really know what they're doing. Friends, after 2008, do we really trust that Wall Street is always going to police itself super well, that Fannie Mae and country, Countrywide are always going to have our best interests in mind? Really? Are we really confident that the Eurozone is going to hold up? Are we really setting our faith in something that wobbly? And we go, oh, well, how about nature? Nature's been around forever. The natural order is secure. The ozone layer is thinning, friends. Storms are getting more severe. What we're doing in environmental devastation to this planet, how much longer can that go? Are we really going to put our faith in there? You go, oh, well, don't worry. Political system, the American system has stood for 200 years. Yeah, thank you. We have absolute gridlock in which no one can lead in Washington, D.C. And, and we just seesaw from one party to the next party in the midterms, back to this party, next to the next party. We, all we're doing is we're just crying out for somebody to lead, somebody to change the system, and it's not working. We're already saying our political system is, is gridlocked. And that's what we're going to put our faith in? And we all go, no, no, no. You've actually convinced me. I don't put my faith in any of those things anyway. I'm, what I do is I put it in my nearest friends and family, my kids. I'm going to hunker down. That's where my security is going to lie. And Jesus said, Really? Because brother will betray brother to death. You think your friends aren't going to narc you out? There is only one thing that will su sustain you in the days to come. And Jesus tells us very clearly what it is in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You can take the words of Jesus to the bank. They will sustain you. They will be true if everything else falls away and everything else is untrue. They will be true even if everybody else fails you. They will stand. When the ship of this world goes down, the one life preserver there is is the words of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, what is the application for you and me this morning? Jesus is bringing this new world. He's coming in triumph. He's going to rescue us but he wants us to be ready. So he's saying, hey, watch out. Don't be deceived because you want relief. Don't cave because you want acceptance. No, don't, don't put your faith in the wrong thing because you want security. Isn't it clear, friends, that the application for us this morning, that like one of the worst ways we could apply this is to pull out timelines and maps and show the Soviet Union as a bear coming down to Israel and all this stuff, that that doesn't really help us get ready that this is really about the attachments in our lives, that we all have this innate craving for relief, for acceptance, for security. And Jesus is saying, there's going to come a time, friends, where you can't have that and have me. 
Right now, it is eminently possible here in Chicago in our day and time that I can have Jesus and I can have relief. I can have Jesus and I can have social acceptance. I can have Jesus and I can have security. But there's going to come a time when the world systems get shaken where those things are going to diverge. And, and relief, acceptance, and security are going to go this way, and Jesus is going this way. And at that moment, you and I have a choice. Which way are we going? And so you and I have got to work on these inner attachments to things that we think are going to give us meaning, relief, acceptance, security. What is that for you this morning? The thing you go, you know what? I'm really thankful to the Lord for this. I'm so grateful to the Lord for this. This is really special to me. I treasure this. I'm not ungrateful at all in my heart because I love this. But if you got pushed and it was follow Jesus or lose that, you're not sure you'd follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is going after. He's saying, you must loosen your attachment on that. Because otherwise there'll be this giant tearing sound right down the middle. You and I have to loosen our attachment even to these great things, these good things, these stable things in our lives. And tighten ourselves to Jesus' words, hanging on to that life preserver because it's the only thing that will float. Jesus said it. He told us, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Amen. I invite you to stand in response to this teaching. Let us now confess our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed. Christian, what is it that you believe?